Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Restoring dignity to those in despair from homelessness is a goal for Daniel Troppi. The photographer has documented many people on the streets to raise awareness of the plight and motivate others to help. A selection of those photos will be on display at Agnes Scott College, as we'll hear later this hour. Finding humor in the most dire situations is a specialty of comedian Paula Poundstone. She's still putting out new episodes of her podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. We'll listen to her with great delight on today's program. First, a look at an amazing species. This Sunday, the Georgia Audubon will host a Facebook Live event titled A Year in the Life of Hummingbirds. These tiny creatures with extraordinary abilities lead fascinating lives. With us now via Zoom is the Director of Education for Georgia Audubon, Melanie Furr. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you for having me. Please share with us your history as a bird lover. I came into... The birding world, a little later in life, I was staying home with my two children after teaching as a high school teacher, and I went on my first bird walk with the Audubon Society less than 10 years ago, and on a spring morning, we saw 45 species of birds in a local park, and my mind was blown, and they have just been a a joy and a delight and part of my everyday life ever since. Oh, how wonderful. Correct me, please. Is it Audubon Society? That's how I always heard it. But here I read Georgia Audubon. Yes. So Georgia Audubon is a certified chapter of the National Audubon Society. We are Georgia's local um, state chapter doing work here in Georgia now across the state. 
What types of hummingbirds do we see in our backyards and parks here in Georgia? So in Georgia, we only have one species of breeding hummingbird. The hummingbirds that we see at our feeders in the summer are all ruby-throated hummingbirds. And I get the question a lot, but what, what about the ones that I see that look black or don't have the ruby throat? So hummingbirds have these magical feathers that um, reflect light in different ways. The ruby throat is actually not ruby at all. And the female ruby-throated hummingbirds have white throats to help them better blend in with their environment. So we just have the ruby-throated hummingbirds here in Georgia, but they can look different according to the light or whether they're male or female. In the winter, we might occasionally get a migrant bird from the western and, and northern states. They sometimes winter here, but they are rarities when they show up in the winter. Melanie, if they don't have red throats, how did they get that name? So yes, the ruby-throated name is for the males, which sport those ruby feathers for attracting females and letting other males know about their health and virility so that they can claim territories. Those feathers can look orange or green or even black. There is actually no red pigments at all in the feathers. So what we are seeing when we're seeing the ruby color is just a trick of the light, kind of like um, a rainbow or the colors on a soap bubble. Oh, how special. How do we attract more hummingbirds to where we live? Do you recommend hanging feeders or planting certain flowers? What's your advice? Yes, that's a great question. So my number one piece of advice is to plant native flowering plants that hummingbirds love, both for nectaring on the flowers, but also it's our native plants that grow locally in their environment here in Georgia that support the insect life that hummingbirds and other birds also need. A lot of people don't realize that hummingbirds do not survive on nectar. None of us can survive on sugar alone. So they do need protein in their diet and they will catch small flying insects uh, on the wing um, as part of their diet. So the native plants provide both the nectar that they need and support the insect life that they need. Feeders are also a great way to attract hummingbirds, especially if you want to see them up close. Oh, now um, I'm curious about the plants. Are you speaking about azaleas, uh, which native plants? Sure, so there are some native azaleas that you know have evolved and always grown in Georgia soil, but a lot of the azaleas that we see in our landscaping and, and yards are not the native variety. So you do wanna be looking for native varieties of azaleas uh, and other plants. Honeysuckle is another plant that hummingbirds love, but the Japanese honeysuckle, which we so commonly see, is an exotic and actually an invasive that can take over and crowd out other plant life. So we have a beautiful native alternative, coral honeysuckle, which mm. produces these vibrant red flowers 
and is not invasive. So it's really important to choose the native varieties when you're, when you're doing your landscaping. Did you know all about plants and uh, the varieties which are best for birds before you took up birding? No, I didn't. In fact, birding is kind of a gateway to all kinds of, of questions and curiosity about nature because once you start watching those hummingbirds closely, for example, maybe you're curious about what was that flower that it just nectared from or what insects are they eating when you see them flying by and, and catching insects with their mouths open. Birds really lead to all sorts of questions about plants and insects and, and those relationships. Uh -huh. I love it. A gateway with wings. The name hummingbird. Does the species have that because they sing as in humming or is it the vibration of wings? Yes, it's the vibration of the wings. The sound that they make when they are beating anywhere from 40 to 100 times a second makes a sort of humming sound. They don't actually have many vocalizations at all. They can't sing. They do have some little twitters and chirps that they use for alarm calls and warning calls, but they do not sing. So that uh, name hummingbird comes from the vibration of their wings. Good question. Hummingbirds are known to travel great distances while migrating, which seems amazing given how tiny they are and how quickly their wings are flapping. Do they return to the same locations? They do. Their migrations are really mind-boggling. To give you a sense of the scope of this feat that they accomplish, a hummingbird weighs about as much as a penny. So if you've got a penny in your pocket, you can see that weighs practically nothing. And they breed across the entire eastern seaboard, east of the Mississippi River, from Florida all the way up to Canada. And they migrate down to the tropics in the winter. Some of them, many of them, making a nonstop flight across the Gulf of Mexico as they go, which is the, the most direct route. Nonstop? Nonstop. 500 plus miles of flying from the Gulf Coast all the way down to the Yucatan Peninsula. Oh my goodness. Now, how do we know that? Did someone put a little camera or tracking device on a hummingbird? How do we know this? They do have some really fascinating ways to study bird movements. Radar is one way that they study bird movements, just like we look at weather on radar. You can look at, at large movements of birds on radar. I do not think they've had... Um, developed a tracking device, <laughs> this tracking device small enough just yet to fit on a hummingbird, but they put them on some pretty tiny birds that we know make similar migration routes. And then also people's sighting reports, sightings. So when you're you know, noticing a lot of hummingbird sightings, people reporting them from the Gulf Coast, and then just a day or two later, you see all these sightings showing up in Mexico, you can make inferences that these birds, you know, have, have 
taken the shortest, most direct route across the ocean. Atlanta is known as an urban forest. What does that mean for bird watchers? Yes, Atlanta and the whole state of Georgia is really a fabulous place for bird watching. We are on what is designated called the Eastern Flyway. So a lot of birds as they return from their tropical homes in the spring are dispersing, either flying across the Gulf or coming up through Texas and the Gulf states and turning east and coming up through Georgia as they disperse across the eastern part of the United States. Georgia has, you know, coastal habitats, mountain habitats. We've got the Piedmont, so we've got lots of different habitats to offer birds. And, you know, our climate is is relatively mild year-round, supporting many, many year-round species. Mm -hmm. You've told us that hummingbirds are known to travel great distances while migrating. Do they return to the same location? If you have a feeder in your yard or outside your window, is that the same hummingbird visiting you again? It definitely could be. And you asked that earlier, and I was answering another part of the question, so I'm glad you returned to that. Hummingbirds are very dedicated to their breeding sites. So if you have a hummingbird showing up early in the spring, hovering around your porch where you normally hang your feeder, and that bird is acting like it's, it's wondering where the food is, it absolutely <laughs> could be the same bird that was there years before. Anecdotally, we have a member who had a, a rufous hummingbird show up one fall at her backyard near Grant Park. And that same bird, which actually scientists put a little band on so that it could be identified, returned to her feeder each November for five years. And they knew it was the same bird because of that leg band. They are very faithful to their, their breeding and their wintering sites. Or loyal friends. I like thinking about the familiarity. It, it, it really is very touching in its own way. If a female has, you know, raised young successfully in an area, she will absolutely come back to that same area. She won't use the same nest the next summer. Uh, she'll have to rebuild, but she will come back to the same area. Her young will also return to that same general area, but they'll disperse several miles so that they're not coming back um, and breeding right in the same area where they were raised, but they'll come back to the same general area to raise their own families. Okay, this is where spreading their wings takes on added meaning, or literal meaning. Melanie, I read that you will have a co-host with you for Sunday's event. Please tell us about Sibley. Sure, Sibley is a, a little light of my life. Sibley came to Atlanta Audubon, now Georgia Audubon, and into my care two years ago after being injured in a collision with a window. Sadly, up to 2 billion birds each year are killed in collisions with windows in North America. So Sibley, after he was rendered flightless by his injury, came into my care after I got the permits from U.S. Fish and Wildlife and Georgia Department of Natural Resources. And he is 
Georgia Audubon's education ambassador. He does programs in public outreach to give people an up-close look at hummingbirds and help them learn about ways that they can conserve birds. So he's in a little cage. He is in a glass terrarium, a large glass terrarium that sits in a sunny window at my home. <laughs> and he has a similar one at, at my office. He travels around with me. He loves car rides. He's got a booster seat so that he can see out when we're driving around. Oh, you're kidding. He spends a lot of time out on my porch. He has another enclosure out on my porch. He gets daily enrichment. Um, with baths and flowers and, and changes of scenery. So in spite of his mobility challenges, he's, he's quite content and, and stays quite busy. And how lucky he is to have you for his human. Melanie, for this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for enlightening us about hummingbirds, and you make birding seem all the more attractive. Thank you so much for having me, and I invite everyone to please join us. We've got free guided walks open to anyone. We have a lot of webinars and virtual offerings right now. We're doing virtual bird walks on uh, every other Friday morning, in fact, where you can tune in and see what our staff and volunteers are seeing out in their local birding patches. It's a great activity that you can enjoy sitting at your kitchen table with a cup of coffee or out exploring in your local green spaces. So I hope everyone will join us. Melanie Furr is the Director of Education for Georgia Audubon. There will be a Facebook Live event this Sunday afternoon at 3.30 titled a Year in the Life of Hummingbirds. There will be more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Homeless people lose more than a place to live and food to eat. A loss of dignity adds to the despair. An exhibition of photography called Searching for Home will open September 3rd in the Dalton Gallery of Agnes Scott College. Daniel Troppi is among the artists whose works will be on view. He joins us now via Zoom. Daniel, welcome to City Lights. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Why did you begin photographing homeless people in and around Atlanta? I took several photography classes when I started. My background is painting, so I literally was a painter for all of my life and then gave it up and got rid of my art supplies, picked up a camera, took classes, and immediately after taking classes, you really need to get a subject matter. As a photographer, what do you want to focus on? What do you really... And I have always loved people, and I like talking to people. I love hearing their stories, and it was a no-brainer for me. I really just picked it up and started uh, focusing on people. I think the people that really intrigue me the most are people who are dealing with homelessness because 
I, in my opinion, you really have to be a strong person to live on the streets. If you're weak and you're meek, it's a very tough place to be. And that intrigued me. And I, I was interested in researching that. And, and I just started photographing people, you know, asking them if I could photograph them and listen to their stories. And that's really how it started. I can imagine that taking pictures of people in such a vulnerable state must be difficult for them and sometimes may feel intrusive. How do you walk that line between showing homeless people and yet not exploiting them? You have to do it with a lot of integrity and dignity. That's how you have to approach it. And a lot of the subject matter, I have built up a relationship with them. I have they have seen me around, I've handed supplies to them and, and got to know them. And I always ask for permission. And, you know, before I asked anybody if I could photograph them, I asked them if they would, you know, mind sharing a little bit of their story with me. And that kind of breaks the ice. They can see that I'm genuinely interested in what's going on. And in their lives and I want to hear it. And, and, then, and then I'll ask them, I mean, do you mind if I photograph them? And I've actually had people tell me, you're the first person that actually asked for permission. And that was stunning that people, you know, would walk up to anybody and just start photographing them without getting their permission as if they were not really there like they're invisible on some kind of a level. And I think you have to do it with a lot of integrity. And I, you know, for me, it's, it's asking and it's gaining their trust and it's, it's building that relationship with people. Many of your subjects are smiling or seem at ease in your pictures. How do you approach them in order to make them feel comfortable enough to be in front of the camera? You know, not everybody will want to be photographed. And I totally understand that and I get that. And, um, but for the ones that do, I think are in some way honored and proud and pleased to participate in this, you know, and I'm trying to document people's stories and their photographs because I'm working on a book. I want a, a photograph book. I want their stories side by side. I want people to be heard. I want them to be seen. I want to bring them in from what people have for so long, put them in little boxes and put them away. They're not in a box anymore. They're out in public. They're all around us. They're in every zip code in every neighborhood in our country. So I am inviting them in to announce to their neighborhood, their, their city, their, the world, who they are. And they, I, give, I, I really feel like I'm, I want to give them that opportunity to be presented in a way that they want to be presented, that they choose to be presented, not how people manufacture or, 
whatever, a story or whatever. I want them to tell me the story. In fact, your photography of the homeless led you to launch your nonprofit called YIMBY, Georgia. Can you tell us what YIMBY stands for? Yes, yeah. YIMBY is an acronym, so it stands for Yes in My Backyard. Yes in My Backyard. I believe, like a lot of people, that uh, homelessness is truly in all of our backyards. It's in all of our neighborhoods. Again, it's in every zip code and area code. And that's why the name EMB Georgia, Yes in My Backyard, really resonated with the nonprofit that I, that, you know, I launched it, to, launched in mid-February, right before this pandemic. <laughs> wow. What does the organization do? We our mission is to engage, encourage, get people uh, excited or interested in how they can help homelessness in their neighborhoods. It can be if you're in uh, the West Coast, the East Coast, the heartlands of America, the the southern borders of Texas, wherever you live. When you're dealing with homelessness we try to provide a template and they see me leading by example. But our mission is to get people excited about how they can participate and help with homelessness where they see it, in their neighborhoods, in their communities. But it, it, it really is to encourage other people to start maybe a group. If I have a wonderful story. I was helping a veteran not too long ago. Uh, at, he, he was standing outside the restaurant. I was walking in. He asked me for help. I said, come in. He, we, he asked me for a meal. And I said, yeah, I'll buy you a meal. Come in. And he came in. And as we were getting our food and, and we were talking, and he's a veteran and he's in his early 40s. So I took the photographs and I, I gave him a backpack. I gave him any supplies that I had in my car and handed it to him and, and wrote down a little story and I posted it on my Facebook page or Yimby uh, Facebook page. And the next day or two, I got an email or a message from a woman who is in the military, stationed in one of the uh, Caribbean islands. And she said, thank you for helping a fellow veteran. But I wanted to tell you that you have inspired me to create a little version here on the island. And Lois, that to me was like winning the lottery. And I've had more people that have started to let me know what they're doing in their neighborhoods, that they see that, you know, me giving you know, hygiene kits away, backpacks, sleeping bags, whatever we give away. We give away so many things. But they see me doing that, and they're doing that in their neighborhoods. And that's the mission of Yimby, Georgia. You mentioned starting Yimby in mid-February. How has COVID-19 changed the way you interact with the homeless? Well, I, I tell you, it, it, it's, oh, gosh, before all of that, 
I would drive around and I would hand out tents and sleeping bags and backpacks and socks and blankets. And, you know, if it's winter, I gave them gloves and scarves and whatever. When this happened in March and the city of Atlanta was shut down, I was driving around and I saw so many people hungry. Their stores were closed. The, the convenience stores were closed. Nobody was downtown. Nobody could hand anybody a dollar. There were so many people that were hungry. And I came, I just started to shift from giving them the tents and stuff to really focusing on giving meals to people. And we created, I would put it on my Facebook page. I would have people say, I'll make 30 mils. Daniel, I'll make 40 mils. Here I am. Come pick it up. What do you need, Daniel, to make a mill? And I, we organized that, and I, we started handing out mills. And Lois, I can't tell you that when this first happened to me, when I handed a mill downtown and I turned around, I took one step. I heard the brown paper bag rip. I took the second step and I turned around and I saw people inhaling the food because they were hungry. And it shocked me. I mean, it was shocking. And that's when I knew we really needed to focus on getting more mills out there. And that's what we did. We, on any given week, we would organize any mills, I mean, we, would, we were handing out mills that were in the 400 to 600 mill range every week. And we did that for the longest time. I had restaurants contacting me at the very beginning when they were closing the restaurants and they did not want their food to go to waste. And they would say, I've got all this food. If I make the mills, can you deliver them? I'm there. I'm there. I was working seven days a week. We were getting the food out to people. Daniel, you use a 35 millimeter camera. Why not digital in this digital age? Oh, Lois, I'm such an, I, you know, I, I still listen to albums like uh, Miles Davis and Lena Horne and, and uh, Peggy Lee on the, my turntable. So I really have always been intrigued and interested in the art of photography. And I always felt like the art of photography was a very un misunderstood art form. I was intrigued by it. And I liked the process of photographing somebody and then having to go into the dark room, which thankfully, you know, I used the dark room at Creative Circus, thanks to the director there, Greg, and there's nothing more magical than going in and pouring the chemicals and putting that paper in and watching that develop in front of you. It's pure magic. And that's really what I was intrigued by. And I know it's not instant because we live in such a world where everything needs to be done yesterday, but I kind of wanted to just make that art form more valid to me. I wanted to validate it on every level. And I think it's funny because when I would take people's, at the very beginning, when I was taking people's portraits, they'd say, well, let me look at it. Let me look at it. And I turned the camera around and they were like, what? And I'm like, this is not digital. I mean, I've got to go into the dark room. I've got to process the roll of film, the negatives, and then I've got to take those negatives and then go into the dark room, put them in the enlarger, 
and step by step by step you have the print and they're like oh my god you are old school i heard that so many times you are old school i said i am old school i still listen to music on the turntable <laughs> you are not alone with that daniel what stereotypes about homelessness do you hope to dismantle through your work and your photography? Oh, Lois, thank you for asking that. Oh, I, I really, I mean, thank you. That's a very powerful question. And today I've met people who became homeless that were accountants, they were restaurant managers. A one woman who lived in her car that has a PhD. I've met all walks of life that were homeless, that are homeless. Uh, I've met and talked to people who were nurses, worked in the healthcare profession, that something tragic happened in their lives. You know, they, they missed a check or some illness happened or a divorce happened. Anything, anything can happen today. Anything. And really, there's so many more people in our country and in our world that are one, two paychecks away from really living in a tent. And that's startling. What is the next goal for Yimby or the next step? We have four goals that we want to focus on for Yimby, Georgia, and they're all very important. One of them is doing shower and laundry trucks, getting shower and laundry trucks out there hitting the streets and, and providing a good clean shower and letting them do their laundry. Then the other one is a food truck. I want to work with local chefs and uh, food banks to get food out to the food desert people, not just for the homeless people, but for the elderly, the handicapped, the people who can use a good, hot, healthy meal. The third one is uh, tiny home communities. I want to build, do tiny home communities in all parts of the uh, of Atlanta. And the fourth one, and I think it's the most important one, is to open up thrift stores. Not just to get our message out about our nonprofit, but say, for instance, you are homeless and you come into the thrift store and you need not only clothing, but a tent or whatever. We'll give you all that. We'll take care of you. But you need glasses or you need uh, dental care, or you need to get housing. We're gonna have social workers in the back of our thrift store providing services from the time we're open to the time we're closed. So when you come in, we're gonna help you and get you the supplies you need to make your life a little easier, but we're also going to connect you with social workers that can help you beyond today. And that's what's so powerful. We need, you know, to get those uh, ambitious goals set or met, we need a great deal of sponsorships. We need corporate sponsorships. We need people that will see what we're doing and climb on board and say, let's get those food trucks out. Let's get those laundry trucks out there. Let's do those tiny home communities. I love the idea of the thrift stores, Daniel. I want them in every community in Atlanta. <laughs> well, you are so ambitious and I have to say, it's so wonderful that it's all motivated by your deep concern for others and 
The world would be much better if more people had your humanity, Daniel. Thank you very much. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Atlanta artist Daniel Troppy is the founder of the nonprofit organization Yimby, Georgia. Y-I-M-B-Y. His photography will be a part of an exhibition called Searching for Home. The show will open September 3rd at the Dalton Gallery of Agnes Scott College in Decatur. There will be more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. We'll be back with Paula Poundstone in a moment on 90.1 WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Finding humor in the most dire situations can help us gain perspective and certainly provide welcome distraction. Comedian Paula Poundstone is an expert in that area. She's still putting out new episodes of her podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. She was scheduled to perform here in Atlanta in March just as the nation was shutting down. Ahead of that canceled tour, I spoke with Paula from NPR West. She talked about her podcast and shared this story about her conversation with the CEO of the Cyber Defense Group. It's a comedy podcast, but we do, you know, in each episode, usually anyways, we bring on somebody who has information that is, uh, you know, helpful to get through life with. And so, yeah, I mean, I wanted to know. I mean, I've been using my cat's names for passwords, and people have told me that's not a good idea. But what they don't realize is I have 12 cats. <laughs> I was wondering what you were up to. Yeah, in fact, that's why I have 12 cats. Is just for every time I get hacked, I have to get another kitten. Aha. Well, so what did the CEO offer? He actually said you don't have to change your password. I asked him, I said, how often are you supposed to change your password? Because I had always understood that this was an important part of keeping the hackers at bay. And he said, you should change your password every time you get hacked. Uh, uh, but outside of that, you don't need to. All right. So, 
as I said, we bring on different people with, with information that is just sort of helpful for living. For example, somebody to talk about, you know, starting a small business, or we had somebody, uh, there's been 84 episodes, so I don't remember all of it, but let's see. My favorite one, I think, ever, because the information stuck in my head, was a plumber. We had a plumber. Joe the plumber? Uh, it wasn't Joe the plumber. In fact, it was a woman. But, oh, uh, good. I, you know, she said... Two things. One thing is that you should not put Kleenex in your toilet. Yes. Uh, because it's a thicker weave, a tighter weave, and it doesn't disperse as well as toilet paper. And the other thing she said is that you should regularly pour hot water down your drains. Really? Yeah. It's changed my life. <laughs> um, and that was, I mean, she was on over a year ago, and I still remember that. But if you ask me what the person said that was there a week ago, I, I, I likely don't remember. But somehow the the purity, the simplicity, and the value of what the plumber had to say has just always stuck with me. I really admire your having people on from all walks of life because it must take a lot of prep. And, and it shows uh, a certain self-confidence on your part in what you will ask them. My original idea for this podcast was something called How to Move Out of Your Parents' House. And I meant that metaphorically as well as literally. And we never used that name, but that's still the sort of driving force behind who I have on, which is what do I need to know to function as an adult? Hmm. And I don't need to know how all the plumbing works, although it might be nice, but I do need to know not to put Kleenex down there. There you go. You're a life coach. Yeah, it is a little life coachy. Um, not quite as hand-holding. Uh, <laughs> but, of course, the main function of the podcast is to be funny, and I like to think we pull that off. It's me and my partner, Adam Felber. Oh, yes. And uh, we make with the jokes, and it's fun. I mean, that's I want people to go away feeling like, you know, they got a laugh and a little bit of information, and, and, and then the deal is sealed. You and Adam are a winning combination. Thank you. Did you meet on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, or did you know each other before? No, we met on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And Adam was in New York when we first started working. You know, when I first came to that show, he was still living in New York. And then he moved out to Los Angeles. And, you know, on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, in the beginning, and I've been there for 18 years, I think, when I first came on board, we didn't work in front of a, a live audience. Mm -hmm. um, we all were in a studio uh, where closest to wherever we lived. So Peter Sagal, the host, was in Chicago. Carl Castle, who was the announcer and scorekeeper at the time, was in Washington. Adam was in New York. I was in L.A., etc. So when Adam came out to L.A., we happened to be on the same show at one time. So we were both in an L.A. studio together, which is how we how we met, and we became friends. Uh, we, I, my kids and I used to go over and visit him and his wife, and then one day, you know, we still knew each other mostly, uh, you know, mostly through work, but we had this also social relationship, and I asked him one day if he would take my son to his hockey lesson for me because I, I had to be on the road, and, and my nanny didn't have enough hands. That's a uh, major step in a friendship. That is a major step. I know people talk about helping you move, you know, the person who has the truck who gets asked to help move or, or pick you up at the airport. None of these hold a candle to, will you take my son? <laughs> 
and and, and if only you knew my son, you know <laughs> how challenging what I was asking him was. It was. Uh, it, I would say that categorically, it's right near. Will you donate a kidney to me? Oh. And uh, anyways, he did it, and that sealed the deal it, right there. It did. It, how did you first become involved in Wait, Wait? In the most boring of ways, they called me up and asked me, and I had never heard of the show, which I'm sure they hate it when I say, but the truth is it's grown a lot over the years. So they sent, this tells you how long ago it was, they sent me an audio cassette tape. Oh. And it was on the island in my kitchen for the longest time because I knew that's what was going to happen with that silly island thing in the kitchen. Stuff just piled up there. And uh, one day I had a nanny. We were standing in the kitchen and he said, what is this? Uh, and I said, oh, it's a thing from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And he said, oh, I love that show. Uh-huh. Uh, and so it was really based on my nanny's advice. He said, you should do that. And so that's why I, I went ahead and and did it. And it was, as I said, it was different back then than, than it came to be shortly after I joined the group. You know, once they started in front of a live audience, the audience is, is like a, another performer that you're listening to over the radio. You There's know, just, synergy. Yeah, it really added, it really added a big element to it. And, they, and we have the greatest audiences too. It's as if, it's as if they're handpicked. Public radio listeners. Public radio listeners are great. What more could you ask for? I know that if one makes a mistake in terms of grammar, oh dear, that they can get a little yeah, testy. But other than that, they're great. The, the grammar police are always out there in public radio, but they keep us on our toes. Speaking of grammar, in your podcast, you have a word of the week, and you do it through song. Well, I tell the word of the week and then I add it to my vocabulary song. My original plan was that I would have this vocabulary song that contained every word, you know, and so it would just get a longer and longer song. And then I don't know how many words in I was before I realized that will be really difficult to listen to. (laughs) War and peace in this song. Well, exactly. So eventually I started, uh, you know, I do about f- maybe five words and, and then they drop off. But we actually, speaking of, uh, of listener contributions, we have a listener who sent us a vocabulary song where she literally used in the song, and by the way, a lot more harmoniously and, and beautifully than I, my song is not, as Adam always says, is not really replicable. It, it's a little uh, dissonant. But we had a woman who sent in a vocabulary song using every word that we've had as a vocabulary word, and it was fabulous. You see, there is nothing like a public radio listener. It's true. Uh, I mean, this woman could do this for a living, and here she is, you know, sending it to, you know, goofy, nobody listens to Paula Poundstone. You know, the weird thing about vocabulary words, and part of the reason I started the song is, you know, I, I can learn the word, And I've tried, you know, using study cards, you know, to memorize. There's a difference between learning the word and blending it into one's own vocabulary. Uh, And I'm not good at that at all. So it may well be that, for example, our president, he may be a vocabulary genius. (laughs) He just haven't blended those words in yet. (laughs) Paula, in a In addition to your vivacious humor, you are also known for your vibrant suits and ties. Would you tell us about your choice of fashion? 
Well, you know, a few years back, I was making some CDs, you know, performance CDs, and there's the cover art issue. So I was doing one that was called I Heart Jokes, Paula Tells Them in Boston. And so I decided that I would go with the uh, classic Minuteman outfit on the cover. <laughs> and I, I had a friend that was a wardrobe person, and I asked her to help me. And we went to these you know, great costume houses. And so I get this Minuteman outfit, which, by the way, according to my friend who's a wardrobe person, they didn't really dress like that. What did when, they wear? Well, the Minutemen didn't have uniforms. Oh. Right? The Minutemen were, I mean, I don't know at what point they did or did not begin to wear some sort of a uniform, but the, when you think about it, the Minutemen, you know, were farmers and stuff who grabbed pitchforks and overalls, guns, and, <laughs> and ran out in the middle of the night. They, I don't think they, I don't think they had time for marching or coordinated outfits, the way the story gets told anyways. I wasn't there. But anyway, so she helped me put this thing together. And, 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 I, and I guess I said to her along the way, I said, you know, I've always wanted to wear like a zoot suit. <laughs> um, just because I think they look cool. They are. Uh, they're, they're like a, it's like a piece of art, right? And it's, they're, they're, I like the bright colors. I like the size of the suit. I, so so I, she said, oh, you know, I can help you. So we, uh, she, she had like a, so there at one of those wardrobe houses, I tried on a zoot suit. And it was way too boxy for me when I looked in the mirror. It just looked too boxy. And so we started talking about how we would alter it in order to, I mean, not that particular one, of course, but how, it, so she helped me design a suit that has a zoot suit, you know, style as a jumping off place. An and homage the, to the zoot suit. Exactly. And then we, you know, went out and chose fabric and I started having them made at an actual zoot suit maker, a place <laughs> called El Pachuco in, uh, I believe it's I think it's Fontana, California, and they do a spectacular job. And what I like about it is it's a uniform for me. You know, I put on my uniform. But it's a wonderful uniform. Well, thank you. But, you know, and I no longer stand in front of the closet going, well, how about if I wear this with this? How about if I do what? I, you know, it's just I go in and there's my uniform and I put it on and I go to work and it's a lot faster. And I think as I'm putting it on a little bit like Mr. Rogers, I'm taking on the getting into character. Well, precisely. You know, my brain starts to do what my brain needs to do in order to go tell my little jokes just the second it sees those suits. See, if the Minutemen had zoot suits and they'd slept in them, you could have finessed this from the get-go. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's once again history ruining my life. <laughs> I remember in our last conversation, you likened your stand-up to being like an orchestra conductor in terms of the way you talk to the audience. But then after you've talked with one person, you will cue someone on the other side of the house. Do you still feel like you're an orchestra conductor or has your method changed? No, it's the same. It's very, that's in, in terms of how, you know, how the audience in front of me is. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, somebody over in this corner said something or we got to know them in a conversation. And, and then maybe later in the show, you know, I, br I bring up the horns again uh, or, you know, or I, you know, I cue the timpani. In that way, it does feel like that. Not that I've ever conducted an orchestra before. 
but I've certainly seen Bugs Bunny do it. You said that you are in fabulous health and you think it's because you are around laughter so much. I have no doubt that that has been... um, It lifts me up on an emotional level, and of course, emotion and physical health are connected. But in the worst moments of my life, right, in the in the years where I've struggled the most, or where the worst things have happened, and guess what? That's how it goes. You you know, things happen. To be able to go on stage and talk about those things and laugh is just the greatest. Because one of the things about struggling with anything, whether it's a physical problem or a mental problem, which we all have, no matter what anybody says, is feeling like you're the only one. Feeling like you're somehow put upon more than anybody else is. When you put it out in front of a group of people and they realize, oh my gosh, (laughs) everybody in the room is laughing because they all have that too. Or they're familiar with it. Or it's not so unique. That alone lifts your little tugboat. (laughs) Well, I hope you stay in fabulous health because the laughter you bring and which clearly uh, sustains you is a gift to everyone. Well, that is so nice of you. Thank you very much. Comedian Paula Poundstone spoke with me from NPR West in early March. You can find her podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, on any streaming app. And, of course, Paula is a regular panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Saturdays at 10 a.m. and Sundays at 11 a.m. on WABE. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. We'll be back Monday at 11 a.m. with an appreciation of Freddie Cole, the great jazz vocalist and musician. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Stephen Key produced the Hummingbirds feature. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. You can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Here's wishing you a safe and good weekend. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. 
help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.